Hi, this is Mia Ashton for Public, and I'm joined today by Dr. Az Hakim. Dr. Az is a consultant psychiatrist who previously worked at the Portman Clinic in London, which is part of the same NHS trust as the controversial Tavistock Adolescent Gender Clinic. Dr. Az is the author of Trends Exploring Gender Identity and Gender Dysphoria, and he has some brilliant insights into the current epidemic of adolescents identifying as transgender and non-binary, which he compares to the goths of his youth. So welcome, Dr. Az. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you for inviting me over. Now let's start with, could you tell the listeners your, your background? How did you end up in the field of gender medicine? So as a child, the things that interested me most was art. And I, and I couldn't really decide whether or not I wanted to do a fine art degree or, or medicine. Um, it was a close call. I applied for both and I got into both. <clears throat> and the reason for medicine was I'd realised that the reason, what I liked about art was trying to work out what was happening in the side, inside the heads of the person who created art. And I thought, that must be that must be psychiatry. So I went into medicine with a view to doing psychiatry. The other version of me would have been a, a wonderfully successful artist, like you know, the young the YBAs or Gavin Turk or Tracy Allen, but that never happened. So I went into medicine. Um, and because of my art background, I thought that the ultimate piece of postmodern sculpture was was surgically transforming men into women and this wonderful new creationism. And then when I qualified in medicine, the first job I did was in plastic surgery, and I used to help the surgeons, well, I assist in the in the plastic surgery operations of the gender reassignments. And I thought, okay, this is very clever, but what's happening in their minds? The surgeons didn't seem to be that interested in what's happening in their minds, obviously, because they're surgeons. So I thought, okay, well, I'll, I'll find out about this when I go to psychiatry. So I went to psychiatry, and psychiatrists didn't seem to be that bothered or interested in what was happening inside the minds of people having gender reassignment either and I thought well there's something missing here so because nobody else seemed to be thinking about it I thought well I'm, I'm going to try and think about it so I, I went to train um, you know in psychoanalytic psychotherapy and forensic psychoanalytic psychotherapy at the Portman Clinic and um, I started seeing people with gender dysphoria and I was seeing people with who call themselves transsexuals, preoperative people, postoperative people, transvestites, and and I, I then developed this expertise, and I started, I started an adult gender dysphoria service based at the Portman, which I ran for twelve years until I left the NHS, and then I continued working privately, doing years and writing, and and because I felt like I was the little boy in the Emperor's New Clothes story, where. Everybody seemed to not be well. Nobody seemed to be thinking about it, and I was I was this sort of troublemaker going. Well, hang on a minute. Can't, what, there's something a bit sort of a bit mad about this whole situation um, because I was I thought I was a lone voice. That sort of just gave me more momentum to write more and speak more. And I was going about it, sort of you know, doing minding my own business, doing this service, treating these people, writing academic papers in academic journals that nobody reads apart from the author. And then, so nobody really knew I was, knew about what I was doing until I joined Twitter. Then all of a sudden, uh, everybody knows what I'm doing. Um, and now I find that I'm doing less of the work because of the climate, so very difficult. But I'm I'm doing things like this, talking to people like you on podcasts. I'm tweeting about it. I'm giving talks, and more people seem to be getting an awareness of um, my concerns and critiques of 
um, gender ideology than they would if I was carrying on seeing patients and writing academic papers. Right. So you're saying you saw you saw something was amiss right from the very beginning. What? Where, when are we talking here? When did you get into the field? So I mean, I, I, I was I started as a junior house officer helping the plastic surgeons in 1996. Um, and then I started my service, my special service at the Portman Clinic in 2000. That was 23 years ago. Okay, so you really saw it early on, long before most of long us. Long before it fashionable. Yes, <laughs> you're way ahead of your time. Um, now, this I've heard about this group that you ran that I find really fascinating. And it almost seems to me that you hit on the answer of how to get us out of this mess before we even got ourselves into the mess. And it's this group where you put pre and post-op transsexuals together. Now, not in my mind, it's they're not necessarily detransition. The, so the post-ops were people who felt some level of regret. Is that right? So, so when, I, when I arrived at the clinic, there were two colleagues who were retiring. One had been running a therapy group for post-operative transsexuals who'd regretted their decision. Um, and the other had been running a group for people who were considering to have surgery or were gender dysphoric. And the, the post-operative group was one of mourning, depression and sadness. And the pre-operative group were one of euphoria, isn't this wonderful what we're going to do? And they both seemed very polarised. And I thought, well, this is a very strange distinction to be making. Wouldn't it be better if we just combined them? So when I inherited them, I combined them into mixed groups so I ran a number of groups. It wasn't just one group. And what what would happen is I'd see patients individually to get a therapeutic sort of, you know, rapport with them, engagement, and then I'd put them into the group once they felt comfortable. And the problem with an individual therapy setting is it mirrors the dyadic binary mindset of the trans mind, which is very male, female, right, wrong, for me, against me. So in an individual setting, the therapist gets drawn into this binary dyadic, oh, yes, you're not, oh, yes, you are, no, you're not, pantomime situation. Whereas in a group where all the members of the group have a gender situation, apart from the therapist. And when the group is run on what we call group analytic lines, where the therapy is done by everyone in the group, not just me, the smarty pants therapist, while everyone waits in turn, but everyone in the group is the therapist and the, the, the therapist is the facilitator. So anybody can say, well, actually, you know, you said this, but it makes me think of this. So the therapy is by everyone of the whole group of the group and individuals, including the, the therapist. And what I found was that rather than this black and white binary setting, you get something far more powerful and creative, as group analysts often say about groups. So you, you'd get people who were on the same footing, they both had gender problems, but they would say, you sound just like me, but you sound completely mad. And this this was fine because it was coming from people who were on the same side, you know, not the therapist side who doesn't know anything and they know everything. And it was really good. And what I found was that typically the people who came in the group who thought that actually the solution for them was to change their bodies, after being in the group for a period of time, it was usually around one to two years, the gender dysphoria went because whatever it was that they had perceived the solution of changing their bodies was the solution. That was deconstructed, examined, challenged, and it went away. So my, my 
And th- th- this was for adults. So, you know, I didn't mind what people did. You know, I'm, I'm, I have a very different approach to children where I do mind what they do. But for adults, they could do what they want. My group wasn't to dissuade them from doing anything and it wasn't to help them through it. It was purely to help them think in an objective way with people that they don't know in a neutral framework. But by thinking with each other and dismantling and deconstructing whatever notions they had about sex and gender, the problems relating to sex and gender tended to go away. And also, I should imagine, understanding... I think, don't don't you find a lot of these young people certainly pin excessive hope on what transition can do for them and they have unrealistic expectations? You gave them the reality. They had to face the reality of what transition meant. Yeah, so they were face-to-face with people who had sounded and thought and felt just as they did, but then their fantasy solution turned out not to be a solution. And what they found was that they had traded in a gender dysphoria for what was eventually a transgender dysphoria. And the typical pattern was gender dysphoria, transgender euphoria, and then transgender dysphoria. And a lot of them said it might take seven years before they got there, but they they started off describing a sense of inauthenticity about their own gender. But then they, they leapt onto the solution of changing their gender as, as, as fixing it, but then they realised they didn't really feel that authentic in their transgender identity. So they, was, they, were, they were still feeling just as inauthentic, but just a different body. That's, you see, when I talked, I had Dr. Stephen Levine on the show, and he's he's, he said something <clears throat> lovely. He said, well, he explained it really well, that like now they're calling, they're moving towards calling gender dysphoria gender incongruence. Yeah. But that they're treating... The, this so-called gender incongruence by moving, removing body parts. So if it's a woman, they'll remove her breasts, and they then she's a woman with no breasts but female genitalia. So they're they're creating actual gender incongruence as a means to treat gender incongruence. It really doesn't make much it sense. It doesn't make sense if you look at all the doctors and psychiatrists there are in the world. The number of doctors or surgeons and psychiatrists who actually get involved in this specialty is minute. And there's a reason for that, because actually you won't find the majority of doctors and surgeons and psychiatrists thinking that this is necessarily a sensible idea. You will have some, and they're the ones who do it, but that doesn't mean we all do. So the the rest of us remain sceptical. Those such as myself were more vocal about it. And my, my vocal um, you know, critique of it isn't coming from a position of hate. It isn't coming from, a, from any party political stance. It's based on my clinical experience of seeing hundreds of these patients over the last 23 years. And my thoughts, views and understanding has been totally informed and transformed by the patients with whom I've worked and I've had very good therapeutic relationships with and they've been illuminating. Um, so it's, you know, it's it's not coming from a place of transphobia. Um, it's coming from a wish to want to help people. And yet you have faced abuse and wild accusations, I assume. 
Oh yes, I mean it's it's it's. I once had thirteen pages of Google of, of, of Google hatred, and I was, I was somebody said I was the most evil, dangerous Nazi psychiatrist, homophobic and transphobic, and, and I thought well, you know, people who know me would recognise this. And my pay, my very my gender patients were saying would say, "Gosh, all this stuff they they they're, they're claiming you to be bears no resemblance to what you are." I, like, oh, I know, I know, but but it's there's what there's presumptions that you're doing. So if you're if you're offering anyone therapy that isn't affirming their gender choice then you must be against them it's very black and white it mirrors the mindset of the trans mind you're either for them or against them and well I was neither I was offering a neutral exploratory space you know if other patients we have if, if we feel that they have an illness we don't hate them we just recognize them as having an illness um, and it's the only branch it's the only part of psychiatry where you collude with the patient so if you have patients with delusions you don't you don't agree with their delusions if you have if you have a patient who's anorexic who feels that their life would be better if they lost more weight, you don't help them lose weight. You try and help the anorexia. If you have, you know, we're, we're, we commonly see very depressed people who are suicidal and they think that they really should end their lives. We don't help them end their lives. So this is the only branch of psychiatry where we're colluding with this false solution. And how, do, how does it feel to see yourself, your 13 pages of, of this, how, how did it feel to see yourself talked about in that way? I wasn't particularly bothered, really. I mean, it's just sort of, I, I, I'm, I, you know, there'd always be people with strange ideas. So, you know, your the role of the psychiatrist, I was always told, was to keep your head whilst the whilst the world around you loses theirs. Okay. Now, all right. So you ran this group. You had you had not detransitioners. You had people who regretted, and we hear all the time that this is this is the minority, less than one percent, or a tiny number of people. So that's, that's clearly rubbish because it's the only medical intervention where there's no follow-up study. So, like, how? So th these numbers are fictitious. There. So if you think about the ideology as like a cult, it's like a belief system. So, you know, I recently said in an article that um, we thought religion was dead, but it's not because the new religion or taking of the world is gender ideology, and there's the. Facts are replaced by feelings and beliefs, and it doesn't really bear any relationship to science and biology. And so rather than having facts, you can make up facts. And if you make up facts and say them enough, then people will believe they're true. So the 1% regret rate is completely fictitious. It's not based on any studies or follow-up studies because people don't follow them up. So, you know, if you have a minor intervention in a hospital you can guarantee that there's been lots of follow-up studies to show the evidence basis for it this is a very major radical overhaul of someone someone's body but there are no follow-up studies i think john hopkins did a follow-up study once and they shut down their service based on the results but they i think that's true um but they, they in britain they don't do follow-up studies in the gids clinic in the tavistock there's no follow-up studies there's no data and none of my patients who regretted it were ever followed up they were lost data no one knew that they existed. And some of them said, well, we've been back to the gender clinics and said that it, we regretted it and they've told us we gave you what we what you wanted, there's nothing thing we can do. Others said we didn't go back to the clinics because we spent years fighting for our GPs, our psychiatrists, our gender clinics to give us what we wanted. There's no way we're going to tell them that it was a mistake. So there's all these regretters, desisters, detransitioners. They are lost to follow up. They don't appear in data. So, but out of the patients that I saw, it was a skewed sample because it was just people who came to therapy. 26% of my patients were aggressors. Okay. Now, this this not following up, it's 
in my mind, it's deliberate. In my mind, it's deliberate sort of willful blindness that it, it would be possible to follow up is what you're saying or, or, or would so it? I've made it even more possible. So um, when I was um, working in Australia briefly as part of the you know midlife crisis when you go into the other side of the world, um, I had a research team and what we developed was an outcome measuring tool for gender dysphoria. And this could be for any intervention, whether it's psychological interventions, surgical, hormonal, and what it measured was how stable, satisfied and happy you are in your gender. So it wasn't restricted to how male you are, how female you were. It could be applied to any gender, whether it's one of those neo-genders like non-binary or genderqueer. It just measured how stable and satisfied you were. Because I thought any gender intervention, we've all got the common aim of wanting people to be happy and stable. We don't want people to do change their minds every five minutes or be unhappy. So it measured that, and we we, we did this 14-item uh, self-report questionnaire. It takes five minutes to do. We, did, we, we, we piloted it over the whole of Australia with all the gender clinics helping us. We showed it to be valid and reliable. We had it published. And there's now a version for children and adolescents. So with these tools available, we contacted the um, the, the, the kids clinic, we actually contacted other um, gender reassignment clinics, said, look, we've invented this, the wheel for you. You don't have to worry about inventing it. We've done all the hard work. And I contacted the Tavistock and the, the, the previous uh, chief executive um, several times, probably about 10 times, by all modes of communication other than smoke signal. And not one occasion did he reply. And there's something very sinister about that. I mean, I can imagine if they didn't know how to collect data or they didn't have the tools to collect it, but someone had offered them on a plate, didn't cost them any money, I didn't want any money, it's free to use, anyone can use it, they didn't reply. And that's weird. Don't you think that's weird? I think it's, I think they they almost know, well, they know, to me, in my mind, they know what the outcome is and they're just, they, but they don't want to know, so they're looking the other way. I, Absolutely. Yeah, 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 I agree. Yeah. Okay. Now, all right. So let's get to my my favorite part now. So on as you've probably seen on Twitter, I write a lot about social contagion. I'm somewhat fascinated by the fact that we're witnessing what is in my mind one of the most obvious social contagions in all of history. Yeah. And everyone's pretending that it's that it's perfectly Almost. normal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so epidemic, epidemic of trans. Well, a pandemic, gender dysphoria. It's a, I, I live in Canada, so I hear stories all the time. We've got you know high school classes with five girls who come out as boys, all within a few months of each other. If if you can't yeah. see that's a social contagion, you you you're mad. Yeah. So, but you have this wonderful theory. I think maybe when I discovered you, or the first time I really heard you speak, I heard you tell the story. Tell. Tell your theory of the trajectory of goth. So could you explain that yeah, for the listeners? So, so, so your listeners are probably aware of the thing called ROGD, which is rapid onset gender dysphoria. So, you know, all of a sudden, every kid in school suddenly has non-binary or trans identity. It's not, it's not the new COVID. There isn't an outbreak of trans in schools, but there's a, you know, thousands fold increase of kids coming home going, I'm trans non-binary. And... So what is that? And what it isn't is a medical condition. What it is are kids being cool, and it's the cool subculture. So um, if we look at the history of youth subculture, so the whole point of being an adolescent is it's, a, it's the time where you 
have finished being a child where you're happy to be told what the world is and what you're like by your parents. And it precedes the phase as an adult where you've come to your own decisions about who you are, what you are and what the world is. And the whole point of adolescence is to turn everything you've been told upside down, be subversive, be creative and just, you know, just be all over the place, really. But being subversive. And historically, youth subcultures, mainly post-war, have been based in music. So anyone from Gen Y beforehand, and I'm Gen X, our identities were based in music. That's all we had. So we covered our school books with pictures cut out from music magazines. We had posters of our favourite bands on the wall. It was all about the music. And then and whether you're a punk or a goth or whatever it is, you're subverting normative frameworks and boundaries. But then, as someone who I know works in the music industry pointed out, then for Gen Z, the social media came around and they were the first generation where music just became music because your identity was no longer in the bands you liked. Your identity was in your social media uh, platforms. So that's why kids these days, they, they like music. They don't really like music like we like music. And then subcultures didn't, subcultural identities didn't die out. So, you know, when you had uh, various subcultures, they didn't stop. They just became non-music-based. So I was a post-punk goth. And I've seen, I'm not really a goth now, but I have one hand that's a bit goth. Um, <laughs> but you can see, but the listeners can't see. I wish, but, I wish yeah. the listeners could see your hand. Um, so the the trajectory of goth as I saw it was you know you had after punk you had the mark one goth which is the post-punk goth and they were listening to things like Bauhaus and they were sort of quite sort of probably a bit scary looking I think I got banned from a music shop once because my parents with sort of vertical hair and, <laughs> and then mark two goth they were slightly happier and they were listening to probably the cure and a bit more sort of you know and then the mark three goth they discovered that you could wear clothes that weren't just black so then they branch out into things like the Cotteau Twins, or they they they'd be verging on the shoe gazing type 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 people, and then Mark IV goth were emos. So they were the people who were like goths, but they were self harming and being quite self destructive. And then comes Gen Y, Gen Z, and the the new goth, which isn't music based, are trans non binary. So you know when I went to school. And I came in one day and Jenny, poor Jenny, she, she, I, get, I quote this on all, all my podcasts, but Jenny, <laughs> who, who was actually uh, amazing, she was the, the best artist and the best brain in the school, she turned up one day and she had vertical hair, amazing eyeliner, lipstick, and she was cool as anything. And, you know, we went to the Jenny and said, Jenny, what is this? And it's like, well, I'm a goth. Within two weeks, there was an epidemic of goths. The whole of my quite well-to-do school in north wales everyone there's loads of us of course we were all we all had vertical hair messy hair eyeliner because because we, we wanted to be cool and and if you look at photos of me when i was that age i probably look a bit like a strange sort of non-binary asexual transvestite but <laughs> it wasn't about gender it was about subverting boundaries yeah so um so now the kid who goes to school looks a bit cool with strange, androgynous-looking appearance. People go, oh, what are you? Oh, I'm, I'm trans non-binary. It's the new goth. They all, they're all doing it. They don't really have a medical condition. They want to be part of a subgroup and belong in this, in this, in this, this 
subculture who's acting to subvert frameworks. In this case, it's gender, but they just want to subvert frameworks. And the and the best thing you can do is what my parents did and just ignore him and get on with it. And you know, and you know, my parents were you know quite sort of strict, sort of first generation Indian people who, as long as you did your homework, it's fine. Um, they didn't care what I looked like, <laughs> um, and they turned a blind eye, and you know, lo and behold, it was fine. But now you've got parents and their children go on a bit non-binary um, trans, and the parents have seen some sort of documentary on television. They're convinced their child has another child hidden within them that needs to get out and be released by medical intervention. They take them down to the gender clinic, and the child gets castrated and cross-sex hormones, and it just doesn't make sense. It's all a bit wrong. You've reached the end of this episode of the free version of Public's podcast. To access the full version, become a paying subscriber at public.substack.com.